I said, well, you know, I started writing this book, and um, would you be interested? It's about treasure hunting on the eastern shore. She said, yeah, I'd be interested. Let me take a look at it. So she emailed me back, and she said, I've got an interview with Ford Magazine set up. Um, When can you deliver the rest of it? I said, rest of it? I said, there is no rest of it. (laughs) It's all I wrote. I I didn't want to write any more until I thought somebody was going to be interested in it. So she said, well, I can hold them off for two weeks. Can you get it done in two weeks? I said, yeah, I can get it done in two weeks. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Andy Nunez, a local historian and chronicler of weird, unknown, and spooky tales. A Delmarvin native, Andy graduated from the University of Maryland Eastern Shore with a degree in art, which he put to good use when he later created an award-winning military simulation magazine called Against the Odds. He is an avid treasure hunter and a fan of the sci-fi and pulp fiction genres, which perhaps bleeds into his work about lost treasures, pirates, ghosts, UFOs, and cryptid creatures on the Delmarva Peninsula. He has published six books, including one with the History Press, and he joins us today. So welcome to the podcast, Andy. Oh, great, Stephanie. Good to be here. Um, we are glad you're here because I want to start with your background in the sci-fi treasure hunting and how you kind of got into that. I kind of want to get right to the meat of that because that's my favorite part. Oh, boy. Well, okay. That's <laughs> it's a lot of stuff to cover, but here's how it kind of spun out for me. Um, when I guess I got hooked on the treasure part when I was a kid because that's when Peter Pan came out for Walt Disney. So they were pirates, and I said, oh, pirates, they got treasure and stuff like that. So I always became fascinated by stories of pirates and lost treasures and things like that. But um, I got a little older. I got hooked on sci-fi and things like that because I read a lot of Classics Illustrated, and I read a lot of H.G. Wells adaptations in Classics Illustrated, like War of the Worlds, First Man in the Moon, The Time Machine. So I kind of got interested in the sci-fi aspects too and then when i was uh, junior high that's when the tv show dark shadows came on um, it was the horror soap opera of the 60s and i got hooked on dark shadows and i still am a big dark shadows fan so all those kind of diverse things kind of just tied together into me and i always wanted to write and I always wanted to just go out and have adventures and stuff like that. So it kind of kind of ended up, I did the adventure part first and then started writing about it later in life. And so how did you get, how did you come to treasure hunting? How did you even know that that was a thing that people really did instead of just pirates? Okay, now that's a good, that's an easy <laughs> one to answer. Okay. Um, uh, way back when uh, they used to have Atari computers, uh, it might have been before your time, but <laughs> they're, one of the first home computers was made by Atari, and there was actually a club here in Salisbury about for Atari fans. Right. And uh, it was a friend of mine who I would swap software with there named Milford Webster. And um, he was, t- you know, I was over to his house one day, and um, he was talking about treasure hunting. He said, yeah, I used to do that. I said, you did? And I said, with what? He said, well, with a the, with the metal detector. And then he showed me all these coins and things that he found. And I'm like, 
Well, that sounds like fun. I'd like to do that. So um, I uh, ordered a cheap metal detector and went out with him. And, you know, I, I like doing it. Now, and, and you feel like there's a that's, – that seems like, like bird watching in that as you do it, you start to get like a sense that's beyond just what the machine tells you of like where to look and what you're, what you're, what you're getting from the machine. Well, you've summed it up very well. What I've discovered since I started doing it in the mid-'80s is that the machine just helps you. The, uh, like I say in my book, the real metal detector is you because you're the one interpreting what the machine's saying. The machine will make noises, and it's up to you to decide whether it's worth digging or not. Right. Right. And as you were talking a second ago, something kind of popped in my head, and it kind of seemed a bit of a parallel, but there's a show on History Channel, something about the curse of Oak Island. Oh, yeah. It was about these two brothers, a guy named Rick and Marty, I think their Yeah, names the are? Laguna brothers. Yeah, yeah. okay. And Laguna, so Laguna. The, the one guy, I think it was Rick, when he was little, he read this story in like a Reader's Digest maybe mm-hmm. about the curse of Oak Island. And he was a little kid, read this story, and he was completely hooked and obsessed and kind of became kind of hooked on that. And so when you were talking about being a kid and reading these books, it just kind of I kind of immediately went back to that show because I've watched it several times. But I would imagine that the Delmarva Peninsula, you know, we have sort of a rich history here with we with actual pirates here and different things like that. You were talking about a friend of yours has found Spanish reals and things like that. So it seems like, you know, we're not necessarily Oak Island out here, but I would think the Delmarva Peninsula would provide, you know, legends and lore that a writer adventurer would probably sink their teeth into. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh the history of pirates that everybody's familiar with, all the great pirates, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard, folks like that, actually did have dealings here on the eastern shore. Uh, Captain Kidd actually stopped in Delaware and traded on his way to New York. And the people that he traded with actually got arrested for dealing with him, and all their goods were cop- all the So they ended up losing all the money that they spent because not only was – what they bought confiscated, but the money that they gave to Captain Kidd. Yeah, he does. He doesn't. He has a pretty strict return policy. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. So, Captain Kidd was here. Blackbird, or Blackbeard, Blackbeard, the pirate was here because that's what Blackbeard Creek is named after hmm. uh, in Delaware. He actually spent the winter up Blackbird Creek and camped there. Uh, now, my f- a friend of mine, Dale Clifton, over at Discovery Sea Shipwreck Museum in Fenwick who actually has a sword that was excavated from the Blackbird Creek site. Get out. Yeah. And it, it has um, uh, clovers on it, which were one of Blackbeard's symbols. Hmm. So um, is it Blackbeard's? I don't know. But it's a neat It's Blackbeard's item. if I'm selling it at a flea market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's, <laughs> you know, I'm you telling can, the you story. Can, <laughs> you can see the sword over at his museum. I mean, it's there. It's in my it's in my book. You know, there's a picture of it in parts of the Eastern Shore. So, so Blackbeard was here. Blackbeard did stuff here. Um, Sam Bellamy from The Widow, he actually wa- went through here uh, before his ship got wrecked up in New England. Uh, actually dealt in Delaware, along the Delaware coast. A lot of people like the Lewis-Newcastle area because they it, at that time it was part of Pennsylvania and they were too cheap to ma- fortify it. So the pirates were there all the time, you know, plundering and hanging out and things like that because the governor of Pennsylvania was just, he was a cheapskate at that time. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't 
He as opposed, as opposed to how expansive governors of today tend to be. Right. Well, th <laughs> that's how Newcastle got its name. Eventually, they built a fort, a new castle there at Newcastle, Delaware, um, against the pirates. But yeah, that was all. That was all true. As far as buried treasure, yeah, there is a buried treasure legend, may or may not rival Oak Island here on the eastern shore at Assateague. Really? Yes, that was Char Pirate Charles Wilson. Okay. Depending on who you believe, Charles Wilson was a pirate in the 1700s, and he buried 10 chests full of gold and silver and copper plate and stuff somewhere on the Assateague shore, and he was captured and hung, and he wrote a letter to his brother, which was intercepted, and didn't come to light until after World War II when they were cleaning up the naval offices in Berlin after the bombings by the Nazis. This letter came to light about this 10 chess. If you go and talk to the Aztec Park Rangers, they say it's a bunch of hooey. That's because they don't want to chase morons with shovels off. Right. <laughs> right. That, that's, you know. Uh, also, Aztec Island was like five feet farther out. Maybe right. like well, 50 feet even. <laughs> Wilson gave very very good uh, description of how many creeks and, and where the treasure, how exact amount of treasure, how many chests, what's in the chest, all that stuff. It's very convincing. Hmm. Now, has the treasure been found? I don't know. Has anybody made Oh, so you're, you're thinking somebody already found it and kept their trap shut. Maybe. That's what I would have done. Yeah. Well, yeah. Not that I found it. Maybe <laughs> it's been found. Maybe not. I think the fact that I'm here illustrates that yeah. I'm not the one who found it. Well, I mean. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the fact that Andy's here maybe illustrates <laughs> he's also not the <laughs> one who found it. three people who have not found the treasure. But I have looked for it. <laughs> <laughs> not for lack of trying. Not for lack of so trying. So what is that like, actually? Just, I mean, I've never been on a treasure hunt oh. of, you know beyond being a little kid and like playing make-believe but right. i mean that's got to be kind of it's gonna be kind of cool though right well here's what happened in this particular treasure hunt and this is the only real treasure i've ever been on we were contacted our club my Melotech club was contacted by a fellow out in california who'd done a lot of research on the wilson treasure and he sent us a map based on his research with an, you know, just like it, just like X marks the spot type sure. treasure map, saying, "This is where the treasure's buried, right here." And we'll, you know, I will split. You know, all you have to do is say that, you, you know, this is the percentages. So I said, "Well, you know what? It's not that far away. We've got nothing to lose. Let's try it." So the whole club got on board. We went to the spot in Worcester County. Um, we used deep-seeking two-box detectors, ultra-deep-seeking detectors, plus regular metal detectors. Uh, we went in the wintertime when the bugs and everything was gone. We crawled all over the site and didn't find anything. Officially. <laughs> as far no. as anyone knows. I swear to God, it's in my book. So it's in Treasure of the Eastern Shore. You can actually see us there at the site. Yeah, you know, trying around. to figure it out. Yeah. yeah, and so I guess that's that's a good transition to. So how do you go from uh, from seeking treasure to writing about just because you write about more than treasure hunting? You write about just kind of stories of the of the weird. Right. Well, anything that happens the on the eastern shore, I try to you know do something about. It. But what happened in that particular case was, uh, I'd been trying to break in as a writer, and um, as, as you mentioned in the in the introduction, I'd been editor of Against the Odds magazine, so I my writing skills were were improving, 
but I hadn't been able to break into what I wanted to do, which was write fiction. But uh, I remember what Stephen King told me, uh, told um, people in his book on writing. He says, you write about what you know. I said, well, I know about looking for treasure, you know. <laughs> so right. I wrote, um, I wrote 10,000 words, and I sent it to Tidewater. And they said, well, it sounds interesting, but we have to put it before a board. There are five members on the board, and there has to be a majority. Well, two out of five said yes, so it didn't work. Sure. So I um, was sitting, eating my breakfast one morning, watching TV with my wife before I went, before I went to work, and uh, uh, Tom Taylor from the Writer's Block was on there saying, well, we're going to have this writer's workshop um, for our writer's group, and it's going to be this Saturday, and, and anybody's welcome to come. We're going to have writers and publishers, and we're going to talk about writing. And Bobby says, you know, you ought to go to that. I said, Nah, I mean, it, I don't know. It costs money. She says, "Don't worry about it. Just, you know, go and and you know, see what happens." So I went there, and there was a publisher there from Cambridge Books, and I happened to take my manuscript with me because I didn't have anything better to do with it. So I said, "Well, you know, I started writing this book, and um, would you be interested? It's about treasure hunting on the eastern shore." She said, "Yeah, I'd be interested. Let me take a look at it." So I, she emailed me back. And she says, I've got an interview with Forward Magazine set up. Um, when can you deliver the rest of it? I said, rest of it? I said, there is no rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all I wrote. I, I didn't want to write any more until I thought somebody was going to be interested in it. Right. So she said, well, I can hold them off for two weeks. Can you get it done in two weeks? I said, yeah, I can get it done in two weeks. So the other 20,000 words of Treasures of the Eastern Shore I wrote in nine days. In a fever dream. Yes, because I was up in, in my office in those days. It had no heat. It was in the middle of winter. There was no heat ducts in that in my office. I was wearing gloves. The only heat was the lamp over my table. <laughs> it's funny. As we record it this, it's very hot out and when you said up in my office, I have no heat, I'm like, oh, good, then it must have been uncomfortably hot. It was it in January. It, it, was, cold. it was in January. I was, you know, literally typing this away in my, this cramped little space, <laughs> uh, like a typical writer. I felt like a stereotype when I was doing it. But it's, it's still um, a solid seller for me. Treasures of the Eastern Shore continues to sell even 10 years you know it was 2005 so 11 years people are still buying copies of it so i'm, I'm happy and uh writing it though you had most you had much of it in your head it was just a question of you, how much of research did you have ready to go when you got the green light for the rest of the book no, well i guess like you said it was mostly in my head because i was reminiscing and i had all my notes and research notes from when i was treasure hunting because you just don't go out and and start you know, you have to do research. So I already had a large body of research accumulated. All I had to do was just pull it out and open it up and jog my memory when I needed right. to. And I had some help, too. Uh, Bryce Stone from the Daily Times, he submitted a couple oh, yeah, of photos absolutely. for me. You know, he, and I asked him, I said, Bryce, you know, do you have a picture of the old Washington High School from the 1800s? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, can I use it? Yeah. So he let me. I said, um, I, I need, I have a yeah, this coin. Can I get a picture of this particular coin? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he was, he was helpful. You know, um, I got the only artist that um, I could afford to do um, the map for the inside of the book. That was mm -hmm. me. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, did um, you also find that, like, when you were kind of doing 
some of the research, did you find that some of the stories, because I feel like this happens a lot with sort of like urban legend type stuff or um, lore, that kind of thing, that some stories end up being kind of the same story but just rewashed and reassigned to different places and people and and different things. Like I remember there's like the, the story of the church with the heavy Bible, and I've heard that's like exists in like five churches but i feel like it originated probably the story probably originated with one but i feel like i've heard that story rinsed and repeated did you sort of come across any of those issues yep uh, exactly so when i was finishing up treasures um my publisher said well what what are you thinking about next i said well you know i uncovered all these legends and stuff while i was doing research for treasure hunting and ghost stories and stuff how about putting that into a book? She, oh, yeah, that would be great. And she put the thing, coming next, Mysteries of the Eastern Shore, so I had to write that book. <laughs> but <laughs> Nothing like a deadline. Going to your point about duplication of events, uh, I've learned that there are at least three churches with the heavy Bible story on the Eastern Shore. Uh, one is, Furnace, is the one at Furnistown. That's the one I know of, yeah. That. One is All Hallows in Shell. Okay. Um, or sorry, Old St. Martin's, I'm sorry, it's Old St. Martin's in Chow. And the other one is near Cambridge, I think. But um, the only one that anybody has ever said, oh, yeah, that happened to me, was at Old St. Martin's in Chow. Okay. I actually interviewed a fellow who went with three, no, two friends into the church, grabbed the Bible, ran for the door, and it was dark in there because there were no lights or anything that one one kid had a flashlight and one tripped and bumped the kid with the flashlight and the flashlight dropped and hit the floor and went out and they got scared they dropped the bible and they ran out the door and waited till somebody came back with a flashlight and when they came back the bible's back on the pulpit dun, 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 dun. <laughs> that's his story you know that's right. So I grew it. up, um, you know, on the double. Well, I, I, you feel like the priest is like, yeah. I think it'd be more effective to make them freaked out than to come and yell at them. Because, I mean, everybody's been yelled at by priests. But like, if you're but no. I don't know. He didn't mention that. Well, <laughs> <Yeah>, <laughs> <laughs> no, like I so I grew up on the, the Eastern Shore, Delmar mm. Peninsula you know, area. And I know like in high school, that was like the big thing. Because like, there's not much to do when you're from a small town. So like in high school, we'd all would like pile into each other's cars and we would drive through the Pocomoke forest and we would tell each other these scary stories mm-hmm. and see if anyone could build up enough, you know, courage to, you know, actually go peek in the windows of the church with the heavy Bible. And we right. all knew that. And there was a, like a Jesus tree that if you drove past this one tree, it looked like, you know, an outline of Jesus mm-hmm. and all this stuff. So, I mean, you know, when you're a small town, you got nothing to do. We would just drive around and scare each other. But, and that's why I think maybe I kind of connected with some of the work that you do is because it kind of reminds me like back of those good old days when we were just all, you know, right. bunch of dumb punks driving through the Pocomoke forest, driving up to the, yep. you know, cellar house farm to see if we could see anything. And, you know, the poor Grams, you know, how many kids have pulled up in their, in their driveway, but, you right. know. I mean, yeah, all these places have stories, like the cellar house where Absolutely. the wife was murdered there by her husband because she had cheated on him while he was out to sea, and he chased her through the marsh and, and killed her, you know, and, uh, for example, the Warren Mansion with its its story about the father being killed by the daughters and buried under the dining room table, uh, all those Places like that have stories, you know, the bridge there on Furnish Town Road where 
It's supposed to have witches or something come yeah, across you and things like that. Stop your car and you flash your lights or something. You're supposed to see something come out of the woods at you. Right. Same thing yeah. like Big All Liz up in Dorchester County. Big sure. Liz is the big ghost of Dorchester County. You know, she was decapitated by her master after burying his treasure. And she supposedly still guards it. Uh, and she, when she appears, she's holding her head in her hands. But there's a bridge there, DeCourcy Bridge, on DeCourcy Bridge Road. Where if you stop on the bridge and you blink your lights and blow your horn, she'll come out. And it did. Well, I did have one guy tell me that that happened to him, and his car wouldn't start. And um, he had it was him and his brother, and they had their girlfriends that they later married. And the car wouldn't start, and they were screaming and hollering. And this glowing ball came out of the cemetery towards them, and it started to coalesce into some figure. And finally, the car started, and they off you feel like you, know. you feel like if you've seen enough horror movies you don't turn your car off when you get to the scary part right i mean no right we just watched evil dead and you want to say to yourself well why you once you got it started why not just leave it running right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> nobody i've never heard a story where somebody left the car running i know right you know, <laughs> always they turn the car off but but yeah um but that's that's the kind of thing and and you know as as i've written mysteries in two ghost books uh, about ghost stories and, and ghost investigations i'm finding common threads like you were talking about there are a certain amount of repetition in people's experiences now my problem um as a researcher is what causes that common thread what's the origin of that common thread are they having similar experiences because of the phenomenon being similar you know being or are they having similar experiences because they have read about the other experiences and and they're informed by what you already right, know right yeah. you know it's like people that see ufos as certain gray-headed black-eyed you know bulgy-headed right aliens are they was that what they're seeing or have they been conditioned to see that because of movies that's what they're expecting like close encounters and and you know, Whitley Strieber's communion or something where they had the bulgy-headed black-eyed aliens. Now, um, when, you, when you're parsing these, how do you choose which to tell and which to reference or ignore altogether? Well, I usually told all of them um, because even though there's some certain similarities, each story tends to be slightly unique in some way. And it's um, the... What what always makes it the most interesting to me is the sincerity of the teller. Right. I mean, no nobody I've encountered any of the stories I've put in any of the books has sounded like they're lying. Right. They all appear sincere. Uh, some of them are shaken by what they've seen. Some of them have trouble talking about what they've seen. Yeah. Uh, but I've talked to people from all walks of life that have had these experiences. You know, policemen. Priests, um, you know, people you wouldn't, you would think would be fairly level-headed, sure, yeah, um, and and not prone to hallucinating or mass hysteria or anything like that, and they're telling the same sorts of stories that, you know, everyday farmers, watermen, you know, uh, school teachers are telling. So uh, it leads me to believe that they're not crazy; they're, right. they, some they're, they're experiencing that, something. Right. Now, what what is that phenomenon? I I don't know. Now, does the treasure hunter, uh, fact seeker in you, 
do you sort of approach some of the ghost stories, the cryptids, the UFO, do you sort of approach that with a certain amount of skepticism? And is there like a debunking thought that's going on in your head as you're... Because I'm just trying to figure out how, like, you would balance, you know, the facts and the legend to make a really good story. Because if it's all legend, it's kind of like, okay. And if it's all fact, then it's kind of boring. But there's got to be a nice balance in the middle. Well, exactly. And, you know, I interviewed one group of people that kind of lived all close to each other that were experiencing the claim they were experiencing the phenomenon. And uh, the first thing I noticed when I went through the door was their trash cans full of beer cans. Right. (laughs) You know, like... (laughs) What are they seeing? (laughs) Uh, And then after I did research, I found out that there was a property boundary issue. Dispute. Dispute. And the grumpy person was doing what they call the gaslight treatment on this guy. Oh, my gosh. To make him think his house was on (laughs) That is the ultimate, like yeah, driving you know. property value down. See, right. I just I just walk around with my shirt off. I didn't never thought of pretending that there was a a ghost, ghost. next time. Right. Yeah. Like, you know. try I'll to paint myself me. white next time. And and <laughs> and the guy had set up trail cameras, you know, and he was he he swore he was catching this phenomenon on his cameras, and he had a huge. Um, That's wonderful. He had a huge TV. It was the, it was the old fashioned uh, analog TV that he was hooking his trail camera up to. And he was seeing, and all these images were appearing when he was showing them to me. So you see that it looks like a bottle. I said, "Yeah, it does look like a bottle." Is he look that? It looks like. I said, "Yeah, it does look like that." So I'm like, "Hmm, maybe there's something to it." So I took it home. I, I copied it and and took it home and looked at it with my digital. Screen. And you saw the strings. No, oh. I saw nothing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Everything that appeared on the analog didn't appear in the digital oh, really? part because. The analog was trying to interpret the digital stuff, and it was, you know, making something that wasn't that there. Wasn't there. Uh, some uh, kind of matrixing effect yeah, or something. Right. It was like some that. kind okay. of effect of the conversion from digital to analog that trying to interpret what it was seeing just wasn't working. So when I digital to digital, it all cleared up. So this poor guy is being terrorized, thinking that there's a ghost or something terrorizing it. He's actually mm-hmm. set up trail cams, and it's actually his neighbor next door who hates him. He was so paranoid, <laughs> he actually <laughs> thought that the patterns in his bedspread were skulls in some of the pictures. Because once, once, you're, because of the way once they were, you're scared, you find right. more reason to be scared. Right, exactly. Yeah. Oh, so, my gosh. So, yeah. How do you hunt down these people with, the, with these <laughs> stories? This guy um, contacted... Um, somebody and said he wanted to talk to me, but a lot of times I'll be at shows, and you know they'll see I've got ghosts. Oh, did have oh, you I've heard about? You. Yeah, oh, have you wow. heard this story? I'm like, let me get my pay here. No, yeah, that's more. great. You know, um, uh, or this happened to you? I was, really? Let me write that down. You know, because I've I've had people that had all kinds of stuff. One guy he got uh, he was sleeping in his bed in a hunting lodge that was built over a cemetery. And in the middle of the night, and it was just him in the building, in the middle of the night, his bed collapsed. The The footboard came off, and he slid out on the floor. And when he woke up, turned the lights on, looked around, the screws were all on the mantle. Wow. You know. Goodness <laughs> so. gracious. I don't know. The, I, I, I totally am fascinated by ghost stories. I could sit and listen to ghost stories all day. Yeah, there's something attractive about them for that reason. You're like, well, what would I do? If that happened to me, I think that's I think that's like the uh, the ultimate empathetic kind of story where we're like 
right away you're hooked and you're like, okay, if I woke up, what would I do? You know, what would I do if I saw this? And I think it's very easy because we've all we've all had scary instances, if not if if not experienced phenomena. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, well, what would I have done? And I think that that's a big part of right. it. Right, and I think uh, the kind of kind of I guess to piggyback that, I think everyone has had a few moments as a few moments in their life where like. What was that noise? I can't explain it. And so once someone starts telling a tale, then it's like strength in numbers. It's like, an, right. you know, like an AA meeting for like, you know, scared people. So like everyone wants to kind of be like, well, this time this thing happened to me. Well, I lived in a house that did this. And so it's there's almost a communal aspect of ghost stories, I guess. In a, in oh, a yeah, way. absolutely. Well, you, you know, misery loves company. Yeah, you know, that's true. <laughs> so when you get somebody, oh, this happened to me. Oh, yeah, well, this happened to me. You know, you'll get stuff like that. And, th- and things, you know, things do happen. I mean, I've gone out with a lot of ghost hunting groups, um, and a lot of s- phenomenon uh, that seems to happen at Furnace Town. Uh, and I can't explain it. it uh, it's a spooky place. Well, I tried to. Isn't it also over, like, iron ore? Yeah, it's all iron ore. I wonder about that aspect. But I had a guy, an engineer, tell me, no, that's not it. Really? That, yeah. He, he and there's not really iron. that much iron ore. I mean, if you th- if well. well it's I'd, bog iron. It's yeah, not it's real not, Yeah, it's not right. the real good um, stuff. I mean, if you think about the amount of work they had to do just to get the kind of not-so-great iron mm. they got, it was. Well, I, and the strange thing that ever happened to me personally when I was down there, uh, it was a day just like today, real hot, muggy in July. And um, I was there at midnight with this ghost hunting group, and this one guy he doubled over, and he's like, oh, man, I'm freezing, I'm freezing. I, said, uh, I reached out my hand to tighten. I said, Mike, what's wrong? And the back of my hand became ice cold, like somebody had put a, an ice cube tray on the back of my left hand and then my right hand, and then it was gone. I didn't get goosebumps. I didn't get anything. I just got this huge, super cold sensation, and then it was gone. Oh, that is wild. Now, what was that? Right. I, I don't know. You yeah. know, could it, could I have imagined it? No, it really happened. Could right. I have, you know, uh, could it have been some kind of auto suggestion? I, I can't discount it, you know. But he was bent over. I didn't bend over. I didn't bend over. I just felt ice cold in the back of my hand. Didn't feel like that at the time, right? Exactly. Well, it was July. Right. I was dying. I was sweating. <laughs> You'd be like, "Hey, could you pass a little of that on my yeah. head, yeah, yeah, exactly. back of my neck?" And- and uh, so, so um, as we're getting ready to pull into the station here, just real quick, some mm-hmm. of the things that you do to promote your books, one of the things we've been talking about. Oh, sure. Well, i got my own Facebook page, of course. Right. Um, and, and I invite everybody to you know uh, check out my stuff. Uh, you can go to the, author, to the publisher's website, cambridgebooks.us, um, and see the, the whole list. I'm on Amazon. And I'm in the writer's block uh, of the Eastern Shore. So and that means the third Saturday. Third Saturday, 1 to 3 at the downtown branch of the Wicomco Library, uh, down in room three. Um, and we have our own Facebook page, too, and a website, um, writesblock.us. Uh, um, so, and, um, you know, I go to shows, different things like that. I like to go to the outdoor show in, in Golden Hill. They're a, a very littered group down there because um, they, they read a lot of books. Yeah, I've been And wondering. I hear a lot of stories from those folks. That's why I heard the one about the guy in the hunting lodge. Right. For example, and some others is because they're out there in the wilds and they're they're actually seeing carrying some of these phenomena, you know. So uh, it's a good group to, to and it's good visit to get with. started. Like mm-hmm. if they point you at least in a direction of the other people. Yeah, exactly. So, but I enjoy doing. Yeah, I just enjoy doing it. talking to the people, writing down their stories, 
making sure that they the stories don't disappear. Right. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's one of my big fears is all the stories and legends that I grew up with. If I don't write them down, they're going to be gone. It is a preservation sort of feel to it yeah. as well. So I feel like I'm doing that uh, as well as, as telling a good story. So we'll see. Excellent. Now's the part where you thank the guests. Thank you very much, Andy. We're, we loved having you here, and it was a fantastic podcast. Oh, it was my pleasure. Anytime. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. To hear more, visit www.saltwatermedia.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher. And if you want other people to hear more, give us a great review there. Tell your story.